very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, we do want to mention briefly, we have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a dollar a month there. We don't put anything behind a paywall, so it's all completely voluntary. Today, Taylor and I are really excited to bring you a returning guest, Thomas Nail. He currently teaches at the University of Denver and has written an extensive number of works, things on Lucretius. Primarily today, we're going to be looking at his forthcoming book, Matter and Motion, A Brief History of Kinetic Materialism. First of all, just a hearty welcome back to the show, Thomas. We're really excited to discuss this book with you. Thanks, guys. It's awesome to be back. I had a really great time in our last conversation. So yeah, thanks for having me. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I can't, we couldn't even say primarily Lucretius. It's just that you've dedicated like a triptych, right? A trilogy to Lucretius. Yeah, so, I should have said motion. <laughs> well, I mean, motion. you know, it's a movement, right? I mean, yeah. I guess that's that's like the what the theory of the border, theory of the migrant. Maybe that was, and maybe you could trace it back to your dissertation work, which we talked about a little bit last time you were here, but a kind of nomadic anarchism, whatever. So you've already, maybe that's, again, that's, we were going to ask you about the genesis of this work. So maybe there is a thread in, <laughs> uh, in terms of motion, matter and motion. Like, was that already apparent to you when you started doing your PhD work? Or is that something that just kind of came out of uh, your interests? It came out of interest, but it was definitely sort of post-dissertation thematic work. I finished the book on Zapatismo, and then I spent a year working with this migrant justice group known as Illegal in Toronto and researching immigration and doing activist stuff. And from that came to realize that uh, emotion was a lot more important than uh, I thought it was, and especially migration. That was so the beginning started with political theory. And then in researching the political theory and writing the books, uh, you know, in theory, of the border and figure of the migrant, I realized it was a lot bigger than just a political issue, that it was really a kind of deep historical, ontological, epistemological, it just involved everything. And it kind of just sent me on this course of following that really simple idea that motion was possibly primary. And then yeah, writing a bunch of books kind of following up the consequences of that really different position. Along the way, there were kind of two big series of books. I mean, it was, it's, a, you know, at this point, it's, it's kind of a lot. One of them were kind of like these books on politics, aesthetics, science, ontology. And the other side was a question that I had in doing the work was like, well, okay, so if the West has really, you know, committed itself to this worldview against motion, 
is there anybody inside the Western tradition that didn't go along with that, that was different in some way? And so I taught this class called the philosophy of movement for several years in a row as a way to test out. I'm like, you know, I had some hunches about who in the West would be really different. And I thought, oh, for sure, it's going to be the process philosophers, Whitehead, mm. Bergson, Deleuze. And of course, that's, you know, the Deleuzean inspiration. It comes out of my work on Deleuze. So I thought for sure he'd be in there. And, you know, by the end of teaching that class, I kind of tried out everybody I thought and some other figures fell out along the way. But for me, the condition was really that whatever thinker it was in the Euro-Western tradition that was going to be very different, they'd have to commit to a kind of three ideas. And those are the three ideas developed in, in detail in this book, The Matter, Matter in Motion, A Brief History of Kinetic Materialism. So that book is out. It's available now. And the goal of it was to kind of develop what those three ideas were, like really specifically, indeterminacy, relationality, and process. How that's connected to materialism is another question, but those are the three ideas that I thought if anybody is going to be into materialism and motion, it's got to be from this perspective that makes it fundamentally different than any other form of materialism or any other theory of motion in the West. And that turned out to be Lucretius, Marx, and Virginia Woolf. And the Woolf book is done, but it's still under review. It'll it'll be out at some point. But those are the figures for me that really inside the West were quite different from this perspective. And the reason they were different, and this is what kind of brought about this book in particular, was that they they came out of a certain tradition. The moderns, Wolf and Marx, came directly from Lucretius, his idea of the swerve. And before that, this book is trying to figure out, surely Lucretius was not the only or first one to ever come up with the idea that motion was radically indeterminate and primary ontologically. And so this book is kind of tracing tracing that story and kind of synthesizing and telling the story in a very brief form. That's kind of introduction to my books on Marx, Wolf, and Lucretius, but also just a way of asking the question, where did this whole perspective come from? And it actually goes quite deep. And this book just explores it all the way back to the sort of pre-Indo-European Minoan tradition. So the Minoans were, well, whatever, we talked about them, but it traces back to Minoans, Homer, Hesiod, then to Lucretius, and then Marx and Wolf. And that's kind of the ancient and modern trajectory. Right. Um, and then to a little bit of quantum physics stuff, like figures who have uh, accepted this idea to some degree in their interpretation of quantum physics. So basically spanning all that time period. That's to say there's a bigger project I won't go into now, but is tracing this even farther back in time and further geographically outside the West. But this book is just kind of looking at that Western tradition and its origins. That's great. And, and you did open up to some of the questions I had. And I did see in one of the footnotes that you're, you've also got a book on chaos coming out. So I assume that that's also involved with these studies. And maybe that was the book you were just referring to, or or that could be, perhaps that's another one. Yeah, you guys and, are going to love you, this one. I just think you're going to love this one. Like you guys in particular well, are going to yeah. love this. I mean, it's not out yet, but it's done. It's I almost emailed you. I almost emailed you. I was like, hey, I want to see the chaos book, you know, but <laughs> oh, I, thought, it's awesome. I thought, you know, let's, let's keep it to, to this one. We'll give this book its due and, and we can wait, obviously have you back. I'll start with this because you brought up the Minoans. You know, it was interesting to see how, you know, you developed the book. Obviously, you said you've got the three ideas, indeterminacy, relationality, process, and pattern, right? Maybe that's that's together, but maybe that's four, maybe that's three and a half. I don't know what, who's counting, <laughs> yeah. right? But I did want to ask, you know, and then along the way, you do an ancient and modern section for each chapter. 
or you break you break each part into two chapters i like the uh that thematic organization but i did want to ask you know it made sense seeing lucretius right you've done extensive work as coop mentioned at the start of the show we had you on last time for marks in motion so it wasn't surprising to see those figures to give you a chance for the ancient and the modern on, on one on each side it was interesting to see you focus so much on the minoans in each of the chapters and then virginia wolf which you said and i think you mentioned in the in your work that you've got a forthcoming book on virginia wolf so i maybe we can start by what prompted you to sort of devote your energy into studying the minoans how that ties in because it was interesting to see that forefronted and do a lot of the the legwork through each chapter and so it kind of set up the evolution of the ideas. And so I guess that start with the Minoans, maybe we can get to Wolf. I don't want to ask too much at once, but yeah, tell us a little bit about that interest. I started working back from Lucretius. The bigger picture point here is that there's quite a lot of uh, material on new materialism at this point, but it's interesting like this word matter. I mean, there's really nothing especially new about the idea that matter has agency, you know, I mean, it's new relative to the Europeans. But I mean, historically, and geographically, this is not exactly a totally new idea. But tracing that back in time and geographically around is a much bigger project. And not a lot of European new materialists have taken that I mean, frankly, they haven't, I think many of them haven't gone back, I'm surprised to see even dealing with just Aristotle's definition of matter. I mean, it just as a historical starting point, wherever you go from there. But Aristotle's got a pretty good, interesting definition of matter. I mean, Hule in uh, in his physics, I mean, it's a short section. It's only a couple pages, but he just lays out there. He's like, yeah, matter's totally indeterminate. It's a logon. You can't say anything about it. You can't know it. It's a oriston. It's without boundary or limit. And you're like, yeah, that's great. I mean, you know, he's kind of missing a little bit of the agency part of it because he makes it passive with respect to form. That's right. a problem. So I'm not saying it's perfect, but starting with indeterminacy is a really key part of, of thinking about what matter is. So I tried to trace it back with the word matter, you know, and take that back and look at what Aristotle says, because he invents this word basically. And why does it, why did it come from trees? That was fascinating. Your 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 focus on etymology. We'll we'll get to the Monoans in a second, but that was fascinating. Seeing some of your you put a lot of stock into the etymology, and obviously that can take us down Heideggerian mysticism and 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 return type of thing. But you really do bring out something interesting with that. For example, Hule is related to trees, wood. Even am I wrong? I'm trying to remember the word that that Lucretius used, which you talked about last time you were here. Corpora, right for quote unquote bodies or, or material things. It's it actually is from the hard core of of trees, the trunk or the maybe the hard wood. I'm trying to remember if I'm Yeah. It's one of the examples given in the Latin dictionary of what could be a body. I mean, this is just a contrast to, because people often think that Lucretius is talking about atoms, right. even though the word right. is never used in the text. And I find that so just mystifying. And I think most scholars are willing to just look past it and be like, yeah, yeah, but he meant that for sure. Right. Because he uses words like, you know, semina that has to do with seeds. And Epicurus also kind of calls them seeds. He tracks so closely to Epicurus in some ways. You just wonder why he doesn't do it. You know, why he just right. doesn't say it. 
and right. it bothers me and and raises questions about how accurate it is to say that he's an ad lucretius was an atomist in any case but the point is that when lucretius uses he has many words for matter and one of them is corpora it just it doesn't necessarily mean like billiard balls or something you right, know right and right, the example right. when you look in the dictionary it's clear that the latin original sense of that word doesn't mean billiard balls it just means bodily but you know, all kinds of things can be bodily, and one of the examples in the in the dictionary is the body of a tree, like the yeah. trunk of a tree. That can be bodily, but that's typically not the image people think of when they see the word corpora. Literally, the English translations just translate corpora as atom. Yeah, and, and I, it, just that's not right. I mean, it's interesting you say that because I I know that there's this phrase. I'm trying to I'm paraphrasing, but in a thousand plateaus, Lewis and Guattari talk about. How a lot of things are bodies we might not imagine. They even consider what are the list of things they say? They even say like ideas are bodies or minds are bodies, all this shit. Right. It doesn't matter. Coop, you can cut that out because I have to go, I have to go look at the passage now. I'm trying to remember. But uh well, I mean, even something like body of the earth, I think, would be a unconventional description of a body. Sure, yeah. Um that's that gets us back to anti-Oedipus, but uh <laughs> no, you're you're right. I mean, we could obviously I had at least one stock Dula's question for later, but I did want to give <laughs> a chance to talk about the Minoan. So you work back from Lucretius. Did you work to Lucretius or work back to Lucretius from Marx? Or did you find out by happenstance Marx's dissertation, which, as we talked about last time, wasn't really translated or even released in the original German till, till late, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, for me, the stuff really kind of started, you know, when I was in this class teaching it, trying to look at these figures, I knew of, you know, through Deleuze of Michel Serre's book uh, right. and read Michel Serre's book. And I was like, oh, I'm going to teach some Lucretius and see what there is. And that's when I got hung up on this whole, God, was he really an atomist thing? And looking at the translations and realizing that he was way more interesting and the swerve was such a more important idea and much more akin to quantum stuff, I think, than Michel Serre ever really understood. Michel Serre takes it into the thermodynamic sciences, but he never touches quantum physics. And I think that right. was really a, a limit of his and Deleuze's thinking on this question of the swerve, because you can look in the literature and it's cited, I mean, in this book, Matter and Motion, that's another key piece I wanted to connect. It's not just these philosophers. This is There are contemporary quantum physicists who have at least taken the time to read some Lucretius and then understand that, oh yeah, what he was saying about the swerve, which is in Certo Tempore and Certisque Loci, so like it's indeterminate time and indeterminate place. It's not a spatial temporal concept. I mean, it's it's not in space and time in that sense. So you can't think about movement or process or swerves that they're just like, you know, a linear thing moving along in space and then suddenly it takes a turn. Right, That's not right. what the swerve is. So anyway, they there's several and they're cited in there. And I found another one since this book. But physicists uh -huh. who credit Lucretius for basically giving a description of quantum indeterminacy before the fact. And to me, that's an important connection that connects Lucretius as an ancient to contemporary sciences, which in their own way answer this question. But going, I started with Lucretius and then I'm trying to work how it is that I got to Marx exactly. I had a feeling Marx would be on this page. But I think it was actually Keith Ansel Pearson at a conference okay, who told me about okay. a he told me about a footnote in Deleuze's Nietzsche book where Deleuze mentions Marx's dissertation and actually in not a positive way at all. In the footnote, Deleuze says this is why Marx and Lucretius are both wrong in their materialism and Nietzsche is better 
than them both. I totally didn't remember this like little footnote. But when I went back, I was like, oh my God, not only did Deleuze really pay attention to Lucretius in a serious way that many people were not at that time in the 70s, that he then he even knew about Marx's dissertation, which right. he must have read in German because I don't right. think it was translated into French. But he had he read that dissertation earlier than and took it seriously and understood fully that Marx was identifying himself with Lucretius in this way. And I think that was the thing that might have got me started down this path. Then reading Marx's dissertation and kind of being blown away by his just absolutely unrepentant affirmation of the indeterminacy of the swerve and some quotes he says where he's like everything is absolute motion and indeter and 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 swerving and i'm like whoa man that's you know i just i know people listening to this show and other people who have you know done peer reviews of my of my books stuff like oh but you know surely so and so i mean trot out the name of one of these people that they think might fit into this and i'm always open to hear new names but i have to say i've looked at a lot of names and i really do require for it to be in this group of selected individuals, you really have to commit to absolute ontological indeterminacy and absolute motion, not deterministic motion, not swerves in space and time, but absolute indeterminacy. And to think that that's what matter and motion are, I think is genuinely a rare philosophical position in the West. We could get to Deleuze later, but I also don't think Deleuze fully it's at least ambiguous where he lies on this. I think he comes oh, sure. in and out. But let's talk about Deleuze at a separate point. Yeah, yeah. The we'll, conclusion we'll, we'll of this there. is tracing it back to the Minoans, which is no, the I love it. question. I love it. Of, yeah, we, we we had to do the spiral. We had to we had to practice the the spiral uh, motion captured in some of this ancient Cretan art, right? That that we get beautiful reproductions of in your book. So yeah, so I okay, we're 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 seeing the line, and and it is interesting that it was circuitous to get to Marx's dissertation, but also to, to get to looking at Lucretius, even as you do in your books in the Latin, go back to the, to the source through Sayre, which is great because around the time, I guess it was maybe a little bit after we had you on last, you know, right before we did the dissertation, almost like preparing you know, for our talk. And then uh, <laughs> a few months later, we did the, what, the birth of physics. As you said, it focuses so much on the turbulent turbulence and but it doesn't go down to the the quantum level which which i'm sure sarah would have been equipped to to handle but again in any case so we we i we do wonder on. about that i don't wonder. Yeah, well, i mean it's a mystery I, for I me and I, 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 every every michelle sarah scholar i i encounter i always ask him this question yeah why doesn't why didn't he get into quantum physics he must have read things about it he must yeah. have had some sense but i can't find anywhere where he actually engages with it and that's always a surprise to me. He's obviously a brilliant guy. He would have had the the wherewithal to, he would have been well suited to bring together the science and the philosophy, right? That's one of the, among other things, that's one of the things we, we love about his polymath aspect. But in any case, the Minoans, yeah. So so mm. how did this evolve, this, this interest in the Minoans? Was it a, an epiphany or ancillary, you know, just a fortuitous encounter? Or it could have been more of an intuition. You know, do you remember, do you recall this, this other rabbit hole, I guess? Or did it, yeah. did it follow from these? I mean, you said look, you trace back from Lucretius, but that couldn't have been, was, was that directly in the River Natura or, or was that just a hunch? It is totally a spiral. Lucretius, 
and then like Mark's Via Deleuze. And then right. I want to say that maybe it was maybe Wolf. And then, and of course, like, you know, Karen Barad. And after I had traced enough of those, I was like, wait a minute, is Lucretius really the first? And that sent me back to then looking. It's not definitely not going to be Aristotle or Plato, but tra- tra- right. tracing back the idea or proto ideas of matter through Hule with Aristotle and the Cora with Plato. I know those aren't strictly with Plato. It's not strictly identical to matter in the same sense as Aristotle, but it's definitely everybody agrees that it's probably some kind of related precursor. And I think it's related just landscape geography wise. It's the countryside. But those were the two cues. Once I traced it to Aristotle and Plato, I was like, okay, so why is it? And I asked like the Plato scholar here in my department, I'm like, why do you think of all the things that Aristotle could have said matter was, why did he say it was like a tree or wood? Why wood? I mean, dirt, come on, water, like all kinds of stuff. I mean, the physikoi, like all of the pre-Socratic, I mean, they gave all these kind of elemental definitions, but why did Aristotle pick wood? And I mean, I haven't found anybody like giving a serious answer to that question. It's going to be speculative by its nature a little bit, but I think Plato's idea of the Cora is because the Cora is not just some abstract nurse or receptacle as it is in the Timaeus. The Cora was just a Greek word that meant like the countryside. You know, I mean, it was the undivided pasture lands of the forests that really abounded in archaic Greece before the rise of, you know, the city states and classical Greek, whatever, you know, the period for Plato and Aristotle, they during their lifetime watched increasingly the natural environment being destroyed. And I think associated still that outside the polis coral space as a space of nourishment and support for the city. And in that way, Plato kind of metaphysicalizes the idea of the countryside, which includes trees. So it got me thinking about those like very foresty tree outside places as sources in the Greek, classical Greek imagination of what matter was about. Because they could have picked anything, but they didn't. They picked something that very much had to do with a forested outdoor countryside, possibly mountainous region. So then that got me thinking about, well, what about Hesiod, which there are some connections that people often think about chaos as a connection to matter. That's how I got into the chaos project, but that's another one. But before that, Homer has all these descriptions too. Homer doesn't talk about materialism or matter directly in those ways. But what's interesting to look at is the way that Homer talks about the countryside and the trees and the mountains. And so I was trying to basically trace back these proto versions of matter in the West, end up tracing them back because a major influence on Lucretius is two sources. One, Greek philosophy, no doubt. He read a lot of that stuff and it influenced him. The other one was archaic Greek poetry. These are his two main influences. So if we want to understand what he was thinking about when he was writing, it's important not just to go look at Epicurus and say, well, he was saying that. He wasn't just saying that. He was influenced by the poetic tradition. He's writing a poem. It's important to remember it's a piece of poetry, and it invokes all of the mythological themes that he knew of from all of the poets. But where they got many of their images was from the Minoans in Crete. Okay, so there's often distorted and there's not a clear connection because we're dealing with a pretty big gap in textual materials between the Minoans and Homer. So the Minoans did have a script. They didn't use it in the same way. It was mainly for like record keeping. It's called Linear A. We don't have a an interpretation. We, we don't code. Yeah. have yeah, not I mean... broken the code for Linear A, but Linear B is the first 
uncoded kind of proto-Greek language that mentions the gods and so on for the first time. That linear B language is, it's related clearly to linear A, and you can see many of the same sort of things going on and names. And anyway, it happens, it's because the a group of Mycenae, Mycenaeans arrive and conquer the Minoans and then produce this hybrid religious, cultural, linguistic, all these things are hybridized. So the Greek gods are essentially this, are very much hybrid versions of Indo-European Mycenaeans who have arrived in the Aegean area and Minoan, long-standing Minoan mythology, which we don't have any written text, but we have lots of amazing archaeological evidence. And so that's the thing that led me back to the Minoans was it's not a text. And so I do the best job and try to cite the Minoan scholars that I feel are authoritative on those issues, especially the ones you can see that are interested in thinking about the, the Minoans from a non, what's the word, like a non-Eurocentric perspective, which is very hard because that is right. kind of the history of Minoan archaeology is Europeans basically wanting to call Minoans the first right. Europeans and everybody from the hippies to the fascists, everybody wants to identify with the Minoans. The articles that I found are ones that are really trying to think about, because the cool thing about the Minoans is there's no images that are unambiguously pictures of gods or deities. They've got no temples, like built architectural structures that you would say this is like a temple to this god. They don't have any figures in their art that are unambiguously like heroes. In fact, many of the fi the figures don't have any faces. Sometimes they don't even have any heads. Right, uh, right. It's just a little stump. There's all these like very weird things about them that do not line up with the typical stories we know when you look at what was going on in Mesopotamia or even Egypt. You can look and see stuff. It's obviously these are gods. They're right. deities. These anthropologists and archaeologists are looking at the Minoans from a kind of new animist perspective. And one of them looking directly at them from a process philosophy perspective, that we're, we're dealing with animate, agential processes in nature that do not clearly line up with gods or heroes or deities in the sense of transcendence. That, to me, was provocative, as well as their art, which is filled with spirals and all kinds of ambiguous, metamorphosed, partially human, partially animal, partially insect figures that there's just not... Yeah, there's a little bit of that in Egypt, but it's not even close to what the Minoans right, were. Right. I mean, the Minoan stuff is just weird. It's very weird, and it doesn't fit in that story. It exerts an influence on that Greek tradition, but clearly the Greeks head eventually head more in the path of the Mycenaeans. I'm sorry, this is like way too long of an answer, but the point is, no, yeah, the Minoans, no. I felt were, there was archaeological evidence worth marshalling to suggest that they might have had their worldview might have been much closer to one of indeterminacy and relationality and thinking about the world as as processes, patterns that emerge, as opposed to objective forms outside of space and time shaping matter in the way that Aristotle thought or thinking that everything was fire or everything was water or right. whatever the, you know, the early Greek philosophers. There's not really any clear archaeological evidence that that was what they were thinking. There's just lots of images of people, you know, and evidence of them taking drugs, going into caves, being outside, but no gods, no temples. What, you know, what's going on here? All of this is good. And at the end of the, the book, when I was thinking about the way in which each part is at the very forefront, we were going to dive into before seeing the modern take on each concept, right? Indeterminacy, relationality, process. We get the Minoan, the ancient, we get the Minoan 
beginnings, if you will, that we, the earliest origins that we, we have records of, so to speak. What I was thinking about was how, you know, to begin to untether ourselves or pull away from this representational type of thinking that, as you just mentioned, that prioritizes or hierarchizes beings, objects, et cetera, right? All the stuff that you're trying to nudge us away from in kinetic materialism. I thought about how, and you just mentioned it, right? How looking at the religious practices that involve intoxication, I mean, it is interesting that, and I'm just thinking about, I can't remember the title of this book. I read it when I was a kid. It was came out in the 70s by this doctor who you know, was one of the only ones licensed to work with certain like psychoactive drugs, including marijuana. And it was about how sober thinking, so to speak, conventionally speaking, can lock us into ways of, of seeing reality as determinate, right? Reality as discrete, reality as stable, et cetera, et cetera. All the prejudices, if you will, that we can see throughout the history of, of thought and whatnot. So I guess that was something that I was thinking about how you do, you don't come out and, and kind of highlight or emphasize it, but you do implicitly sort of give some credence to the fact that these experiments with, or not experiments, but these experiences with intoxication, ecstasy, et cetera, this Dionysian element, if you will, is part and parcel of some of the concepts and ideas that you're you're trying to promote. I'm not necessarily saying that, you know, you just go and take drugs and then you'll see indeterminacy, relationality, blah, blah, blah. But that there is perhaps something intuitively, holistically related. And we can see that in, in the Minoans and the Eleusians, et cetera. Am I kind right. of on, in yeah. the ballpark? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, you you got your Jordan Petersons, you know, who who take psychedelics and come away with like absolutely bonkers ideas of white supremacy. Totally possible. But I mean, it's like, you know, the, these are amplifiers of experience. And so it really the context really matters. So in the case of and this is part of the chaos book is and it's another side project to sort of trace this. But I will say this, that the that the cultures who historically have these the commitment to movement as being ontologically primary and as indeterminate also have this kind of relational epistemology and if you think about i mean of course you can you know deny it or whatever and say that's not what's important about it and i think that's basically what you know plato and socrates do when they you know effectively take lsd and go to the you know rites of eleusis there's a book called the immortality key that came out uh, like maybe a couple of years ago but the book has evidence in there as close as we're ever going to get that inside those ritual vessels at Eleusis, which was about 15 miles northwest of Athens, people would go drink from a, a ritual glass and the kukion and they would, yeah, and they would, they would have all these experiences and they weren't allowed to talk about them. I don't want to get fully into the story of Eleusis or I'll go on forever. But the point is that, but like almost every Greek did this, we now have some pretty good archaeological evidence, including finding ergot inside the teeth of the skulls of leftovers at these sites that were, it wasn't exactly Eleusis, but it was like another, they iterated versions of Eleusis. It wasn't just there, but like they kind of franchised it and other people like went out and made their own Eleusis. They copied all the architecture. They did all the same rituals and things like that, as well as a kukion 
we have a Greek style kukion with ergot traces in it from archaeochemical analysis, which people have only been able to do archaeochemical analysis, you know, uh, I don't know, for the last 15 years or something. But if you think about so much we've lost historically because when archaeologists find artifacts, they acid wash them to prevent mm. decay. But when you acid wash them, you basically remove all the traces of whatever people, whatever the foodstuffs or drinks that people were drinking. Anyway, Immortality Key is a great book that goes through all of the drugs that the Greeks were on. And I'll just sum it up and say they were on a lot of different drugs. And it's what was in Dionysus's wine is way crazier than what you think it is. It was only kind of wine. I mean, it was they used to use wine as like the base to put in all kinds of other herbs, including opium, hemp and uh, henbane and all kinds of other psychoactive chemicals. But we know that the Minoans were there's lots of images of them with poppies. You know, clearly these are corn poppies. The point is, you can deny that that's what's going on, but at a very basic level, the idea that you're seriously getting any kind of knowledge from any plant substance, it's just fundamentally a relational kind of character. And you can say, like maybe Socrates, who you know drank the kukion and came away thinking that everything was, well, Plato really, uh, and Pythagoras too, that like everything was ideal forms outside of space and time. The visuals produced by that kind of experience might suggest a kind of geometricism. So he might have said, oh, well, the drugs allowed him to get to that vision, but that's just because the vision was already there. One other way of thinking about the longer history of people around the world using psychoactive plants and things like that, it's fundamentally relational. There's something that the plant is, you only learn through the plant. The plant is teaching you something in some way. And if you only know through the plant, then you're, it's a kind of hybrid human plant knowledge that's happening. So there is an argument for a kind of a relational epistemology that and why it doesn't have to be this version because there's lots of versions of relational epistemology. I mean, observing a double slit, doing a double slit experiment and making an observation, there's a <laughs> relational epistemology there too. You right. don't need opium for that or poppies or whatever. But historically, lots of these people uh, who I've, I've tracked and looked at the texts also have built-in structures of psychoactive plant use as a way to engage and know something about the nature of the world. And you can see a pretty big division as, as time goes on, that starts to be less of a good idea. And it starts to be actually, that's the big problem. And classical Greece is one of those points in this particular geography where suddenly intoxication is like no longer access. It's actually like a deterrent or a confusion. It allows the senses to distort your rational capacities. Basically, the rise of kind of Greek enlightenment and Greek rationalism, which is way overblown, I think, basically what European historians have said about Greek rationalism. It's it's overblown that the Greeks were somehow these like rational pinnacles. I mean, they were all on all kinds of drugs and they were still performing all kinds of religious acts and, you know, versions of daily animism that are built into Greek society, even if like maybe Plato didn't didn't have that same view. He was the one that was saying, art is never going to show you the truth. Drugs are not going to show you the truth. Poetry and Homer and all that stuff is going to lead you astray. To me, that's a really big breaking point in this geography is the relationship to a relational epistemology that has to do with where you are. Are you in a cave? Are you in a forest? Are you listening to the river or whatever? These are all relational features of how you come to know whether we're talking about, you know, talking about animistic agencies and persons of trees and nymphs where you're talking to them. That's part of the relational epistemology. Anyway, I have lots of examples from the book because I think that performative and relational part 
is also really part of the indeterminacy. Because if you don't know exactly what nature is, and it's not one thing in particular, you can only really kind of know it by doing it. Does that make sense? You can't just like, I'm outside the world looking at it. If you're in it, then you can only know it by being in it. And so the question is, how can you be in it in such a way that you're doing the same thing as it, and therefore glean the knowledge performatively, instead of gleaning it in some pretense of objective neutrality. And one way to do that is this longer history of drugs. If I remember, Coop, when we were uh, at the end of the, the concert with Gizzard, King Gizzard, the, the concert, he's like, all right, kids, go take LSD or something like that. <laughs> right. And I, I mean, it's just like, yeah, there's there's a sense in which you, you got to at some point you got to do it. But th that's what I was talking about, but like getting locked into sober thinking ways of altering our quote unquote normal modes of uh of thinking, which I think is why the Liz and Guattari and Anti-Oedipus, not to, again, we're not going down the Liz road yet, but why they, they talk about delirium as, you know, it's not about true, false, illusion, fantasy. It's about the, the lived experience of it. But Cooper, are you going to say something? We're going to be talking to Henry Summers Hall about focusing on nomadology coming up soon in a couple of days, actually, which I think is, I didn't even make the connection to this discussion in terms of nomadology, but also just thinking about the spice melange, because I, Thomas, I've become like obsessed <laughs> yeah. after the last episode you came on. I've become obsessed with Dune, which is kind oh, of that's interesting. when you became obsessed with Dune. Okay. I think Go on. The, the new movie got me back into right. it. Ultimately thinking about the drug, you know, melange, and I guess the whole Atreides tracing the lineage back to Agamemnon, who I believe was Mycenaean, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, just a lot of kind of weird symmetry or synergy with the sort of web of thought that we're going down this week. I didn't really have a question per se. I mean, I would just piggyback and say the nomadology, part of what Thomas, you're doing, if to speak in a thousand plateaus uh, language is there has been and, and is this royal science that sort of determines and overcodes ways of of thinking and knowing and etc right and so there is a kind of minor line a minor science line that we can trace through these thinkers that you've been discussing and um leave that aside i did want to ask you following up because the other figure that i was i was interested in tie in virginia wolf to this story and why she became one of those thinkers that fits your criteria in this book? I mean, I was surprised about, I think maybe all three, maybe Lucretius was not on my first round list, but he was on the second, but Wolf was not. And Marx, I think was kind of late to, to when I taught the class. So I did, was not expecting Marx and Wolf to be on here. I was expecting for sure Bergson. And I have now, I don't think that he quite fits this in the same way. And it really does have to do in almost all cases with their fit with Lucretius. So in particular, it's undoubtedly, Wolf did not read Marx's dissertation. So I think that right. is not a direct connection. <laughs> right, I right. think she read she read Marx for sure. And, you know, Leonard and all of the Bloomsbury people all read Marx. And so there was that, I'm sure, but that was not the thing. The thing was that Virginia Woolf learned Latin by reading De Rerum Natura. Mm -hmm. And I actually got a hold of her, and I have it if you want me to send it to you, but I have now a scanned version of her copy which is actually a version of her father's copy of De Rerum Natura, is from her personal library. And what she has in it is there's translated sections. She has translated by learning the Latin. She 
translates it into English, but it's not the whole book. She didn't translate the entire book right. into English. You mentioned that. You mentioned that. Yeah. She just translated sections that she thought were really important for some reason. And it is interesting that all three of the moments in De Rerum Natura, where Lucretius is clearly outside the Epicurean model here, and he is entering into these states of ecstasy. They are moments in the text where he is explicitly, he says, taking in the, in this is in book one, the thyrsus of Dionysus penetrates his heart. And for him, the heart would have been like the mind, the, the seat of the mind. Right. So he he's essentially kind of but it's very poetic language, but I mean, come on, if Dionysus is penetrating your heart and mind, and he says, then when that happens, his mind begins to grow, you know, like a plant. And then he goes to the mountains of the muses, presumably in some state of ecstasy, where he then roams around the mountains and looks for flowers and waters that nobody's ever, nobody's ever seen before. Nobody's ever drank these waters. Nobody's ever made a, a crown of flowers for their head with these flowers. So he he's telling us both a poetic story of like, I'm going to tell you something that's beautiful, but it's also going to be something you've never heard before in this way. But he does all of it, you know, with drugs. Uh, you know, it's a very relational kind of Dionys Dionysian moment. And that's a section that Wolf translates. And the other one is in book three, where Lucretius is, it's the most kind of ecstatic moment in the whole book. There's no Epicurean that could ever get down with what Lucretius says in that opening, like line 30 or something of book three, where he says like, oh, I've read all the pages of Epicurus and, you know, like I've drunk them in like a bee or something, you know, drinking nectar from flowers and I'm spilling it all over the place. And like, that's the point where you're like, whoa, this, would a serious Epicurean scholar say that they were like spilling over like the page, you know, that this was some kind of like, drunken ecstasy as opposed to a serious scholar right. lucretius was not a serious scholar of epicurus he was influenced no doubt but the seriousness of his scholarship in this passage is seriously questionable and the, the notes in the Loeb edition the editors are like this can't be right he must have said this wrong because he's sounding like he's not a serious epicurean here Right. But he's not. OK, so but then he drinks all of the the pages and he basically go, his body starts shaking and shivering. And he says, like, I see before me the entire nature of things unravel before my eyes. And I go into this like shivering ecstasy and Wolf translates that section. Nothing else in that around it. My point is the thing that got me into reading Wolf actually was because I was investigating all the connections of Lucretius how people had received him, what they did with him. Most people, re I mean, almost everybody in the Euro West read Lucretius, but not most people didn't like it. I mean, they didn't like uh, everything. Right. You know, they couldn't get they couldn't get down with the swerve. I mean, to me, that's it. Really, there's just two kinds of people in that Euro Western tradition: is you're either down with the swerve or you're not. In the mm. true sense that Lucretius says, the swerve, right. Right. right? Is it indeterminate? Like radically, radically indeterminate. And relational, like all the indeterminate changes are related to one another when matter moves. So either you kind of accept this swerve or like most Europeans are like, yeah, yeah, this is all great, but also God. They've got to sub in God or like, this is great, but also the soul. And it's like, well, no, there is no immaterial soul. You do not get this kind of Christian, deist, whatever version. That's what the Europeans did to Lucretius when they got a hold of him, except for Marx, who really pushes the envelope in a unique way. And then Wolf, who basically accepts, and I think she, her emphasis is Marx is more focused in the on the theory of nature and the swerve. And in Wolf, she really kind of zeroes in on the relationship of the swerve and naturalism to what she calls moments of being. 
I have to say that, I mean, I really like Wolf. She's wonderful. But, and I, I, I thought that before, but when I read her unfinished autobiography that she wrote just two years before her suicide, she has a section in there where she basically says, this is my philosophy. Nowhere else. In fact, most places she says, yeah, philosophy is not really that great. You know, she has all these critical things to say about kind of analytic British, you know, Bertrand Russell kind of philosophy. She's not interested in that kind of philosophy. I mean, she certainly read some of it. But she's like, yeah, I'm not going to read that. But she'll read Lucretius's De Rerum Natura over and over again. And she says her philosophy, essentially, and to me, this is like a really big deal for somebody in the Euro West to say that everything is nature. She says all of art all of it is the thing itself. There's just not a distinction for her between things as they seem and things as they really are. There's just the nature of things. They're always swerving. And for her, she has a per her autobiographical story is that she has these moments, she calls them moments of being where she sees, she says, the patterns that are sort of hidden beneath the cotton wool of daily life. So things look like they're discrete. And then actually underneath it all is this process. A really great image that she uses a few times is of like a fishing net with kind of bobbers, corks floating on the, holding the net up. She says like, you know, below or like marking where the net is below. So the idea is that on the surface, you just see these little bobbing corks moving up and down. But below the water's surface, there's this vast net that kind of holds it all together. And you not not see how the corks and their bobbing motions are related. They just look like individual discrete corks, but actually they're all related by this net underneath. And so that's what she means by these patterns. Anyway, I could go on, but if you read Mrs. Dalloway, that's where I started with it. It was like, it is filled with fluid dynamic vocabulary. Right, right. You can't hardly read a page where she's not using all these powerful process images of water and mist and smoke and spirals. And there's actually a line back to Deleuze, a line that Deleuze quotes from uh, his seminars, which are which have now, I believe, now been translated. We have them up on the Deleuze Seminar website. So you can read Deleuze's seminars, but he has a really great one on Virginia Woolf or a section where he talks about Woolf, I should say, where he quotes the line, I'll never say again that I'm either this or that. To me, this is like a clear philosophical statement of indeterminacy. And she has several iterations throughout Mrs. Dalloway, where in this moment where she's you know, seeing all these omnibuses spiraling around and she's like overwhelmed by all the movement. And then suddenly she's like a knife cutting through the world. And Deleuze loves it. You know, he's like really dramatic in the lecture. He's like saying this, you know, about Wolf. And he's like, this is just like the best part of Wolf right here. We're like, <laughs> she slices through the world like a knife. And I'm forgetting the exact word, but it's like not like so inside the world that one is outside or something like that, where the inside and the outside no longer have this divisional meaning where the inside becomes the outside and the world wolf just kind of slices through it all like a knife. And in that moment, she realizes that she'd never say of anyone that they were either this or that. And that's a key statement of indeterminacy is that the world isn't this or that. It's just not a thing at all. And I think wolf really is a process thinker in that way. Yeah. There was something you said that, that made me want to correct the paraphrase where, uh, you know, you brought up the soul and Lucretius, and it was from a thousand plateaus where they say souls are bodies, right? Because yeah. Lucretius, yeah. it's the lightest corpora. Again, I, I have to train myself not to say atoms, right? But the lightest bodies, the lightest corpora, they're the first to leave after death because the seal is broken. It made sense why Virginia Woolf would be featured in this book. I just, I was curious about the genesis of 
discovering that link. That was what was unclear. That's really good. I, I know that. Yeah, it's the Lucretius connection. The fact yeah, that she was so deeped in it. And Wolf scholars, there's a couple of them that talk about Lucretius, but he was a big deal. Wolf's father really loved Lucretius. Her brother loved Lucretius. It was like a family thing. I mean, it was like there was a kind of atheistic uh, family, yeah. at least on yeah, her father's yeah. side. And they're like, yeah, this is this is great stuff. And I think she grew up with that. And the Bloomsbury group, there's like the Bloomsbury group translated some Lucretius stuff too. It was like in the water, everybody there was thinking about Lucretius. And to me that it solidified this connection with her in a way that other people, the link just isn't there. In this way, this was a big insight actually just writing this book, Matter in Motion. For me, one thing that I wasn't fully sure of until I kind of tried to hash it all out and write it was that Lucretius really is this linchpin, this bridge right yeah, between yeah. the ancient and the modern world. He brings the ancient poetic sensibilities to the modern world. And only some of those moderns are wanting to actually hear that and go with it. And that's, I think, Marx and Wolf and other people who there's lots of other people, but they can't they just can't fully affirm what Lucretius is saying. But I think really Marx and Wolf can. I'm still trying to postpone the two digs. Because the real question I want to ask is about the caution at the end of the, of the book, because I or we could we could talk about that now. Um, actually, you know, you do suggest caution because one of the things we brought up already with intoxication experience, which, you know, since we're doing etymology or if with etymology in mind, right, goes back to the notion of taking risk, right, trying things out. And it does feel like one of the subterranean threads throughout the book is this question of experimentation. So I did want to ask, what was it that made you modulate your voice in that conclusion, you know, suggesting that caution be taken if we start to go down this road of indeterminacy, let's say, relationality process and giving them due primacy, what made you sort of self-aware that caution should be should be broached? You know, because obviously this reminds me of a lot of the caution advised in A Thousand Plateaus, right? Kind of looking back a little bit at anti-Oedipus and, and a little bit of the worries that they were taken the wrong way, you know, those in Guattari as though they were saying like, just go go wild, be schizophrenic, drop out, that kind of shit. I guess I'm wondering what made you put in that line about about caution. Yeah, thanks. That's a good uh, question. So there, yeah, that paragraph. I'm just looking back at it now. And I the guess second maybe... to the last sentence too. I think if I'm remembering the second, but there are similar dangers and etc. So it's still mm. there. But but be cautious. But experiment. But taste taste of the fruit. May the fruits of all these alternatives be picked and eaten, right? Expiring us to experiment. So you do end on this notion of experimenting, but obviously I suppose that's, you know, the body of the organs can be botched, et cetera. I'm not trying, I guess the loser's on the brain because uh -huh. I know we're going to ask about it, but, but I didn't want to want to just, I'm yeah. curious if you have any words about that. And if you do see this history of kinetic materialism, suggesting us to experiment otherwise ontologically nauseologically etc i think that the sense in which i was kind of thinking about this and worrying about it a bit is that one might think either after reading the book lucretius marx and wolf got it right and all we need to do is like read what they say and then go do that that there's something kind of 
you know, like, oh, the truth has been found. This means we ought to do X, Y, and Z about it. I wanted that to not be a takeaway that like, oh, this is somehow the right answer. And all we need to do is like return to these things or, but I mean, even then, well, what's the takeaway here? Like, should we have this indeterminate view of quantum physics? Should we do what Wolf was doing? Should we do what Marx was doing or Lucre? Like, I guess it just meant to not be like this normative imperative that any of these people in this book somehow got everything right. That's not the spirit of what I was trying to do, was just trying to show that there's a connection. The three kind of, or three and a half, we said thematic things, <laughs> that's what it's all about. But none of those on their own are going to give you like an answer to any particular political problem. Does that make sense? So the caution is like kind right, of right. a political caution. These aren't all the right answers. They're not going to even necessarily like big deal. So the, I mean, the other thing I have on my mind is, and a worry that I have about contemporary material, new materialism and vitalism is there's just this kind of naive optimism about it. Right. The world is indeterminate. Therefore, we should be and relational, therefore, we should like care for other people and be nice and save the world and not destroy it ecologically. I mean, that sounds great. Like I'm on board with that, but like it doesn't follow from an ontological statement that the world, like there's swerves. I mean, you know, the world is swerving, therefore, what? In my view, nothing follows directly from that. And to me, that's not like a weakness of like, oh, the inability of a process materialist perspective to give us any answers to concrete political problems. The point is, is like when you give answers to political problems that are sort of grounded in ontology, you actually end up closing off politics. For me, politics really is about that antagonism and about that experiment. There is no pre-given solution to what to do. And certainly if there was, I'm not going to be the one to know it or even say, I mean, you know, like, I just worry that one could come away with an optimistic view too, like, because Marx believed in indeterminacy and he was a communist, therefore we should do some version of communism that somebody says Marx said. No, I mean, it's not a substitute for really engaging with political experimentation. The point is thinking about the world from an ontological perspective of indeterminacy, relationality, and a process orientation. It's a good, I think it's a pretty accurate description of the world that matches up with most of what the experimental evidence shows about the world, since we don't have any experimental evidence that there's anything static or that there are deterministic processes. Like we just, we don't have evidence of those things. So it's a good description, but it doesn't uh, tell us what to do. But what it does do, okay, so if it doesn't tell us what to do, I think that's actually a good thing because we should have to figure that out for ourselves. And by ourselves, I mean everyone and figure out who the everyone is, who the we is, and then go from there and include all that we in the process. But there's no shortcuts to politics. You have to do it. And I don't want to shortcut that process by saying any particular political whatever follows from this. That said, there are some particular political things that don't follow from this that are basically ontologically erroneous, and we have no evidence for them in any way. They're just ridiculous beliefs that are really doing more harm than good. And that is to just shortly say the great chain of being. That's one of the main enemies of this book and of the whole orientation here is that whole great chain of being all the way up and all the way down, having any ontological hierarchy. There's no basis for this. There's no observation of the world that's going to confirm this uh, unless it's a self-confirming one. You have a hierarchical world and you look around and you say, look at all the evidence of a hierarchical world. It's like, yeah, well, one that you made hierarchical. So it's just circular. My point is, there's lots of different ways that the world could be, and that's part of indeterminacy means that it can be a lot of different ways, that it's not baked in 
great chain of being. So it's just like a, a clearing. It's like clears away at least some of, and I think a huge piece of rubbish, which is just metaphysical ideas of the great chain of being. Get that out of the way and just, you know, in a kind of Nietzschean sense, then you can get down to the real like desires. Just say what you want. Don't hide behind metaphysical ideas of justice and nature wants us to do X, Y, and Z. Nature wants us to be good. Nature wants us to do X. No, nature doesn't want you to do anything. I mean, nature is wanting in general, like nature is desire. So let's just be honest about what we're doing, which is expressing desires. And if you want equality, then just say you want equality. You don't have to ground it in something of like the state or God or nature, just want it. And people struggle. I mean, there's not a shortcut to that process. There's not an ontological ground of politics, but, and this is a kind, I mean, I think truly a, a Deleuzean inspired point about desire. And I find that in Lucretius for sure with Venus uh, yeah. being desire and that being the opening major thematic of the book, like politics is desire and you, you have to fuss that out. There's not a shortcut. So that's the caution is like, don't think that these authors got it all right, or somehow we can look to them for everything because you know, there's also a whole other world of thinkers that are not in this Euro-Western tradition that are also worth engaging with and thinking with. And they don't have all the right answers either. You know, like, it's not just a matter of romanticizing some texts or some old thinkers. But what is important is at least getting rid of the great, rid of the great chain of being so that we can be honest about what we're really doing. That was a good answer. Yeah, I, I, I like what you said. And it, and it makes it makes sense in context. It just I do think it's it was a nice warning at the end because a lot of it does seem like we need to be bold and move beyond a lot of what has kept us back. But at the same time, it's I can see now that the caution isn't just about experimentation, but but about undue optimism. Coop, I did want to give you a chance, if you will, to jump in. You mentioned kind of these ontological assumptions. And to me, one of the ones that I found most interesting. I mean, this even goes back to our last time you were on the show discussing Marx in motion and about how these kind of arbitrary decisions related to value, you know, we kind of select who determines. This also applies to the sort of hierarchical aspect of what do we value? What gets valued in the system of capitalism and this sort of arbitrary assumption that value is a thing, a discrete thing that's not part of a greater process and to try to extract some type of atom of value from this greater process is just an ontologically flawed assumption already at the beginning before you even get to politics or any of the other stuff. So I don't know. That's one thing that sort of stood out to me from the book in general. And even, like I said, went back to Marx in motion. That's not so much a question yeah. as just a observations. So I don't know if you want to maybe draw that out a bit further, more specifically. Um, well, I'll just say that I... Say, in the Marx in Motion book, that was a connection that I ended up making just after reading Marx's dissertation, lots of other things became illuminated that he says in Capital. And one of those is he makes this direct connection between what Capital does, like the idea of value under capitalism, and the idea of atoms in materialism, that the idea is that you can just extract and think about there really is this discrete thing. And that is a key feature of value is that it treats things as discrete. And that's just not the way the world is. There is nothing that is ontologically discrete. So you have to admit at a certain level that capitalism is a game of make-believe. But again, this doesn't exactly get rid of capital, uh, but it does shed some light. And you're not fooled that you're like, well, hey, it's just capital's just the nature of things. I mean, like, you know, it lets you not fall down that path. 
but you could say, fine, it's just a game of make-believe, and uh, I'm going to keep playing it until the world's dead. You know, I mean, you could right. still do that. You could still say, fine, I agree that capitalism is a pattern of motion, and it's all process, but it's one that I want to do and just redline it to the end. So, you know, you could still do that. Obviously, that's not what Marx hopes that you will walk away with from capital. Um, but still, I think that is a key point is that it's just capitalism is a wrong definition of, a, of the world. It's just not an accurate description of reality. And if you follow it, I mean, you can. I mean, you can make up all kinds of false things about the world and follow them out. But you're going to encounter some problems if you do that. And we are living through those problems right now. If you pretend like the world is something that it's not, you're going to have some problems. If you think you could just cut down trees from some part of the world, ship them to another part, and this is all going to even out. It's not. It's just not. Ecologically, it just won't. You can't just cut down trees and have them grow back in the same way. I mean, trees that have been there for 500 years, it's just not going to grow back in the same way, on the same time scale. You're going to exterminate all kinds of species. Anyway, there's there's all these consequences so that you can't pretend like it's just a question of mere quantity. It's just not a question of mere quantity. There is no such thing as quantity alone. But that's the basis of the metaphysical lie of capitalism is that it, you can treat things like their quantities. Sure. But there's going to be some nasty consequences if you do. You talked earlier a little bit about how even if during the ancient Greek civilization, I forget which thinkers, but you know, they're kind of looking at the countryside and seeing the sort of exploitation of nature or what have you at that point. That even draws this kind of same distinction. It's almost like this geography of the city. It creates this false barrier or like false division between ourselves and nature and like that process of life and whatever the universe, et cetera. The idea that the, for Plato, the idea that the Cora is passive, merely passive, is just wrong. I mean, just materially, descriptively wrong about the world. Like the Cora is not, the countryside is not passive. It's the only reason why the Greeks are alive is because they've got a robust countryside. And if you treat it like it is passive and merely there for you to extract and cut up and build cities and have wars and cut down all the trees, if you treat it that way, you will encounter problems, which is exactly what happened. Ecological collapse of the whole that whole Greek area, they destroyed the entire environment. I mean, it had huge ecological consequences and social and political, but it all is based on this idea that you think you can just destroy the Cora because it's just right. passive. The Demiurge just takes a lump of... <laughs> you know, stuff and shapes it into something awesome like the polis. If you think that, you're going to screw up everything up. It's just a bad idea. You can do yeah. it, but you're stupid for doing it. You know, it's self-destructive. It even kind of draws on this almost metaphysical notion of value in the sense of your example earlier about the net and the way that on the surface of the water, you see the the floats, but you're missing like all the activity that's below the surface. And I almost feel like this is the point, like we're so abstracted from the natural process of like the natural metabolism of how even our own economy works. It's like the Amazon package just magically appears <laughs> at my at my front door. You know what I mean? It's like the problems with that are like obvious, as we've already kind of discussed. The religion is capitalism. It's like this metaphysical like, oh, look, the market just magically delivers this product without understanding the labor that went into producing the product, whatever it may be. So, Yeah, it reminds me of that quote from The Big Lebowski. The dude is like, you're not wrong, Walter. You're just an asshole. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's like there is a package. There is a product. You're not wrong. You're just an asshole. You can pretend all you want, but it's going to catch up with you. I think that's a that's a pretty good ontological characterization of the situation. I was just thinking, Coop, when you talked about the magical 
I was thinking of like a stork would be a great, if Amazon is looking for a new logo, they could change it from the little, <laughs> little smile to a stork. The stork delivers, <laughs> deliver your package today. Anyway, I was wondering, because you brought up your chaos book, which is nice because we can already, part of the, the outro, we always ask what you're working on later. And I know you got a bunch of projects, but we have a wolf book in, in the works and we have a chaos book. I guess I was wondering about, you know, we do have the pre-Socratics and as you say, they, the physiocrats or whatever, or not the physiocrats, the physi, the ionic physiologists, I think is what Simonon calls them. Heraclitus of fire, Thales of water, et cetera. And I was wondering about the Apiron, the Apiron and its notion of being indeterminate, indefinite, and Obviously, this doesn't necessarily fit in the book. It didn't show up, but maybe that's something that will show up in your book on chaos because the Apiron would seem to fit in. I know that one of the definitions of one of the ways of translating it is as the the indeterminate. And obviously it has relations to the Quora and, and Plato and whatnot. But is it an Aximander or an, an Exagoras? I, I, maybe it's an Aximander in, in the Apiron. I can't remember yeah, who first. It's an Aximander, yeah. Yeah, it seems to be related to Hesiod's chaos to a certain extent because the Apiron would be would seemingly play into some of this indeterminacy, but maybe there isn't as robust of a literature. Obviously, in Aximander, we're pretty much reduced to the fragment which brings in these odd notions of time and justice and, and sort of paying price for transgression, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, which has probably been like interpreted to death, but still is, is kind of fascinating. In any case, I was wondering about if we will see, or if the Apiron had, had come across your meditations on this subject of indeterminacy, and whether or not yeah. you see it in your chaos book. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. Usually people bring up Heraclitus, and it's I hate answering the question because it's always like somebody who really loves Heraclitus. And then my answer is, I'm sorry, he's just, he's not in this group. I agree with you because in, really, in reality, you can't step into the same river once because it's not the same river, but whatever. But also, I mean, for Heraclitus, <laughs> I mean, he's a monist. He, he just is, is fire. Right. Right. Fire. Yeah. This is an important distinction that Lucretius makes in book two. All these other like philosophers where there's like an element that everything's made out of, that's monism or dualism, or even with the elements with Empedocles, that is not indeterminacy. Lucretius says no to all of those models. And sometimes when people hear me talk about Lucretius, they're like, oh, it's like a monism. I'm like, it's not a monism. Because what matter is, is not a substance. It's not. Yeah, right. so you can't have a monism if there's no substance. It's not a substance ontology. But as usual, people have a very hard time thinking outside of substance ontologies. As close as you're going to get is going to be Heraclitus. No, because not everything exchanges for fire. Just it's not all fire. Okay, so anyway, back to the Aperon. I've been looking around here because I have a whole section that I wrote. It's like a really long footnote about Anaximander because I did. I went on a whole research thing about this yeah, because yeah. I thought it was very close and I wanted to follow up. I wish I could remember it because it, it gets it, I mean, it's quite specific what the problems are with it. But one sure, okay. one here, I'm just going to so I'm just going off of my memory, but I do have a footnote, a long one I can send you later on this. And I'm trying to remember even where I wrote it. But it's well, there I can always ask somewhere. this question when you come back with the chaos book, because, uh, you know, if, if the chaos book is going to like, really be uh, up our alley, then we do want to have you have you back for that. So yeah, you don't have to 
You don't have oh, to. Oh, you know what? It might be in the chaos book. I think it is in the chaos book, actually. But but let me just tell you the short answer is yeah, yeah. we have almost nothing from Annex Mander. We have lots of testimonia, secondary people talking about him. We have like one line that is supposedly from him, and it is not helpful. And it doesn't have no. any description of the Aperon or anything. It doesn't give you anything. All we know is from other people. And I think that's important to keep in mind that whatever people are saying about it is is like hundreds of years later by people who just somehow heard that he said this. So let's just keep in mind, we're not dealing with the primary texts here. We're dealing with secondary commentaries. The other thing is that when you do look at those commentaries, the one that is very close to him and that is authoritative in, in many other ways, not perfect, but that's Diogenes Laertius. Yeah, you're right. But even then, it's close. But even then, it's like hundreds of years later after Anaximander. And what he says is that the Aperon is completely deterministic. Gotcha. Okay. It is. So that first of all, sense. I that would... Make, that doesn't even make sense with, with the, the name itself. But No, it does. It does. And here's why. Because the Aperon, it's like it's supposed to mean kind of like unlimited. I think indeterminate is a, not a good translation of what that is. Just because of Anaximander's usage of it, it just means that it's like not bounded by space. In principle, that's fine. But the next step he takes, or at least according to, you know, Diogenes is it's deterministic. It follows natural determinate laws. And that is that is something that makes it not truly indeterministic. But I am with you that it's a thing to think about. And I can send I'll send you the footnote because I think it is in the it might be in the chaos book or elsewhere. But I've got all the citations and the details and I'd like triple, quadruple checked it because I thought for sure I was missing something. But really, there's not. It's all secondary material. And the evidence, the textual evidence that he's a determinist is solid. It's clear in the text that he does not mean anything that's indeterminate in the way that we're talking about with the swerve at all. Right. right, It's not relational. It's just all one one stuff. But what that stuff is, it's it follows completely fixed laws. This makes me think about so many of these ancient thinkers that would come into play here, how much of it is Sextus Empiricus, Diogenes Laertius. There is this question about this game of telephone. I was going to say overcoding, but this (laughs) game of telephone of what gets transformed or again, to bring up the major science, minor science thing where it's like, it's trying to fit a round peg into a square hole, whatever, you know, like things have to, sort of fit into what seems more dominant in the air, the contemporary uh, tradition. That's another question. I mean, I, I was just thinking about this because I have seen a Pyron translated as the indefinite, as unlimited, as infinite, as maybe indeterminate is not quite etymologically close, but it's associated with it. I know Nietzsche goes on a fucking rant in his pre-Platonic seminars. I'll have to look up that too. But again, something we return to. I also want to say really quick, I believe that for Annex Mander, it's also spherical. Okay. The shape. And that too is going to be a no-no for that's outside the tradition that I'm talking about. There's not going to be a shape. Well, for Lucretius, there wouldn't have a, a shape. If it's really indefinite, why would it be bounded? Right. Exactly. Uh, it does raise questions about Anaximander, or at least the consistency to which secondary commentators have attributed various things to him. But it's pretty standard. I think that it's almost every one of those early Greek philosophers who has a spherical cosmos. That's not an accident. It's true that Anaximander is a very cl- he's like very early on the scene. You know, he's really close on the heels of Hesiod, but ultimately Hesiod is already taken a step away 
the chaos idea is great. And this is something I learned in the chaos book is that Hesiod really, he's even steps farther away from chaos and indeterminacy than Homer does. But it's a gradual change from like the Minoans to Homer to Hesiod. But once truly you get to Anaximander and everybody after that, up to Lucretius, there really is no true ontological indeterminacy. I almost don't feel like asking uh, the Deleuze question, but we've been like hinting that we were going to get at it. And in my notes, I said we can we can do this loosely for fun. And so we've covered a lot of ground and, and you've been you've been very kind of like your book. You're you're covering a lot of ground concisely. And that that's refreshing. It is refreshing sometimes to be able to cover broad swaths of ground and terrain without necessarily feeling like you're getting stuck in the mud. Although I did enjoy a lot of your footnotes where you do some of the deeper dives, like like your footnote on chaos, which may be one of the longer footnotes in the book. So that was a hint that you were thinking about this at greater length. Obviously, I saw some resonances. I already brought one up about caution, right? Where it does seem like the Lizanguachery, the, the watchword of a thousand plateaus becomes caution, not, not necessarily a word we see in, in anti-Oedipus, right? That in the intervening years, we see this I want to say repentance. That might be a little bit harsh. But I mean, the list talks about this in the Abbasidaire, which I mentioned mm-hmm. before the show. You know, he he gets into a little bit of worry about, you know, he's like, look, if someone's at the end of their life and their midlife crisis or whatever, and they're and they're going to tune in, turn on, drop out, whatever, they're going to they're going to destroy themselves. That's fine. They've lived their life. But he hates to see, you know, young people sort of destratify too quickly or whatever the fuck. The impression he got was that they had inspired a kind of a little bit of an exorbitant relation to whatever it may be, intoxication, drugs, or he seems like he had a little bit of guilt or, or something like that. a little bit of conscience. You know, it wasn't necessarily like Goethe and Werther where he's like inspiring people to jump off bridges and shit. But there were two digs, if I can even call them digs. You had the footnote. You already mentioned Nietzsche and philosophy and, and, uh, you know, Deleuze taking Lucretius and Marx to task, even though that was fortuitous for you to, to like see this connection and, and lead you to Marx. I guess it was in the, at the end of chapter one or chapter two, you have the footnote about Deleuze subordinating matter and motion to force, which could be probably a broader thing that maybe you'll want to answer second. But the other dig I saw was, and I don't know if Deleuze ever actually uses the term flat ontology, but it seems like it's a phrase that is, and you you may know better than I do, but it seems like a phrase that is associated with a certain strand of Deleuzeanism, right? With demolishing hierarchies and these other things. This notion of a flat ontology seems to be associated with Deleuze. And you explain how in relationality, the change of, of any, any element involves a change of the whole, right? There is this kind of doesn't necessarily imply an equality of beings or something like this, that the tessellation you're after is, is much more complex and nuanced and intertwined and entangled than one, one, one might think of in that phrase, flat ontology. And I was wondering if, if you wanted to say a little bit more than that, because it was a kind of a cryptic aside, if you will. It just made my ears perk up, right? My eyes widen a little bit. And I was wondering about if there was a, a larger beef there. So I know that's a lot to answer. You don't, have to, you don't have to go into all of that. You know, I know that we talked about last time, which we didn't really go into. You know, you had mentioned in um, Marx in Motion taking 
or, or maybe it was in another book that I referenced, you know, taking the lows to task for, for the Lucretia stuff, you know, in logic of sense. So I guess this is the, the mm. chance for you to maybe delve into that a little bit more since we didn't go too deeply last time. The Dulles topic is quite large, but these two things I think I can answer pretty quick. The first one is not so much a dig. It's just kind of a matter of a fact. A matter of fact, in the Nietzsche book, Dulles explicitly rejects both Lucretius and Marx's materialism in favor of Nietzsche's dynamism. That's not so much a dig, but it is just a note for me helped clarify a difference that I was finding in these thinkers. And one of the things ultimately that kind of puts Deleuze slightly in a different camp. And one of the matter in motion to force to force. And let me give you another example. If that sounds like too abstract in the appendix to logic of sense, he says in a section, which is all about Lucretia and Epicurus, he says that the, the swerve, it's not caused by anything exterior. That's right. But then he says it's actually because there's a conatus inside of matter. When I first read Deleuze, I was like, oh, that's cool. But then once I had read Lucretius and came back, I was like, actually, that's not cool. That's really not even textually supported at all. Lucretius in the entire De Rere Matura never even uses the word conatus. It's not part of the story. It's not part of Marx's story. It's not part of Lucretius's story. But you know whose story that is. Right. That is Spinoza. Okay. He takes his own version of Spinoza and the parts that he likes, and then he kind of reads that into there. But just from a nerdy, whatever textual perspective, that word does not occur. It is not an explanation that Lucretius uses. There is, importantly, no cause of the swerve. The swerve is self-caused or something. Like it's just, there's not just like a swerve over here and a swerve over there. Everything is swerving, Lucretius says, all the time. There's never a point when the world is not swerving. It just swerves in these kind of metastable patterns that look stable and real, like a reality. So anyway, the point is there that this force thing really, once I read that footnote, I was like, oh, that's what's up with that Conatus bit where he gets that wrong. But it's because he's trying to inject force. Some concept of of buggery. It's a little bit of buggery, right? It's he's definitely trying, some buggery. He's trying to bugger um, Lucretius with Spinoza, a little artificial insemination going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what's going on. So that's I, just... I yeah. swerve, therefore I am, is what I was thinking of. I swerve, therefore it is. I don't know. Okay, that uh, makes sense. Second, second one is also pretty easy. I've got flat ontology. I think you're right. That's not something Deleuze like a phrase he uses. It's right. something that other people attribute to him or say. Yeah. I just wanted to make it clear. I worry about that term politically. It has this kind of ring of that there's some kind of equality in being. And I just think that that's just not the right word for thinking about a swervy universe. You'd have something instead of that's flat, it'd be more topologically diverse. It's not to say that there can't be any hierarchies. I mean, that's again, back to the end of the book. Of course, little hierarchies can emerge. It's just important to note that there's not, there's no ontological necessity for them to emerge. They don't really have any grounds. I mean, yeah, somebody can be an asshole. Somebody can be a white supremacist and insist on some kind of racial or otherwise hierarchy. That's just going to happen. And that's part of reality that that can happen. It doesn't mean that it's good. It just can happen. It's just, it's not ontologically grounded, even if that person thinks that it is. My point is, I think it's better to think about if we're going to think about like the way being is distributed, it's better to think about that more descriptively as like like a mapping of a terrain that's really dynamic where there are some hierarchies where they build up and then you can notice them and think about them. Hopefully it's not what they're thinking. 
people say that they're like colorblind. Oh, I don't see race. That's not a way out of racism is just pretending right. that there's no race. You know, like, oh, I don't see race. Like, first of all, that's rubbish. But also, like, that's just not that's not a good description of what's going on. So let's just give a better description and go from there. So again, not really so much a dig at, at Deleuze on that point. I can't remember when I first came into contact with that phrase, flat ontology, but I do associate it with Deleuzean literature, not necessarily with, with Deleuze's terminology, though. So that's that's why I wanted to, I even like hesitantly put that out there. Like, I'm not sure. I was thinking of where that could come from. It could be, again, logic of sense, because there is a kind of Mobian type of discussion, right, of, of you know, as we go further, deeper down the rabbit hole of Alice in Wonderland towards through the looking glass, the depth becomes surface, it becomes Mobian, obviously, crowned anarchy, discord and accord was something was a phrase that I, I saw you, you citing uh, Wolf, I guess, her autobiography, where she uses almost a, a similar phrasing, right? Mm -hmm. I think she says discord and harmonies, which could be another translation of Delicious French. So it's not all digs, obviously, it's not all, but obviously some some distances there. And I guess that I would just say, you know, even in Deleuze, if being is said in a single sense, right, there is still an inequality in that comes out of that, which I suppose you would want to find in the differential, et cetera. But yeah, I guess we're getting a little bit into the weeds there. Those are the two things that I, I just had, like, as an aside, kind of like inside baseball, but it's stuff that we do cover Deleuze here a lot. So it's it's one of those things where it'd be like a little bit of an interesting footnote to a footnote, right? There's a lot to say, but it's probably best to just refer. I think it's like chapter three of being in motion. I have a whole chapter that's just very textual, looking at all the places where Deleuze says stuff that is honestly a little confusing, but certainly a mixed mixed bag. But it's important to look at the text and see what he says about movement, because it's easy to get confused. <laughs> like it was right. took a lot of work to to find all that stuff. But in the end, I think it's much more ambiguous how much Deleuze is really kind of committed to a certain version of of indeterminacy. Even though there are places again where he seems to be saying it, like indifference and repetition might be some of the strongest places where he does explicitly talk about indeterminacy. But then the stuff he says about the swerve and some things he says about stasis and motion are a little bit they don't quite fit. But it's certainly more interesting than it's a more complicated story than either Bergson or Whitehead. I think he kind of merges the two together. That's the short story there is I right. think he really wants he's like really like the ultimate process philosopher who wants to synthesize the two greatest process philosophers, Bergson and Whitehead, bring them together and make this kind of ultimate process philosophy. But in the end, I think he ends up kind of taking on what was problematic about both Whitehead and Bergson, even though he gets both the good stuff. He also kind of gets all their bad stuff, too. So I'm not sure if it like fully overcomes some of the problems of process philosophy, but it's a very valiant attempt to do so. Yeah, that's good. And uh, that's food for thought and and could be a whole episode. So I, I don't want to go too. We've already gone down a couple of rabbit holes, right? So we can, <laughs> we can, we can save we can save some terrain for for later. I will see the you know, I, I want to leave space for any. Um, Coop, if, if you had any other uh, questions that you had, you know, and I do want to leave time to to talk a little bit more, Thomas, for what you're doing in the future. We've already talked about a little bit, but there might be some other things you haven't brought up. But yeah, I, I suppose I'll we can we can 
I think my the floor open. Yeah, go ahead. My final question may uh, help us transition or like segue into that. This is purely vibes based, so please, please bear with me. <laughs> <laughs> but I was wondering, okay, in the chaos book, are you going to be just to give us a little bit of a preview? Are you going to be engaging with Guattari's chaosmosis? In reading this book and your mentions of Virginia Woolf, I was thinking, you know, because I think the term chaosmosis Guattari gets from Joyce. Joyce. Yeah. Another, you know, stream of consciousness, whatever, if you want to consider that the genre of Wolf and, and Joyce as writers or what have you. So just kind of curious if that was influencing your writing or it's going to make an appearance at all in the chaos book. The chaos book is very much going back in time and not forward, but it's given me a greater appreciation for modern authors who are thinking about chaos seriously. And I include for sure Joyce Wolf and Deleuze and Guattari in those categories. I think to me, that's one of the things that really does mark them out from many others in like 20th century stuff is how much they're willing to kind of commit to certain ideas of chaos without going full like Kenton Mayasu or the hyper chaos, which I think is right. just, I think that's just wrong and ridiculous nonsense, to be honest. I think it's not at all even remotely close to what's going on in Joyce Wolf or Deleuze and Guattari. It's just like pure randomness, ex nihilo randomness. And that is nothing to do with the swerve or relationality or yeah, any of these things we're talking about. That's just pure idealism. Even though he calls it materialism, that's not <laughs> materialism uh, in this tradition. The answer is, yeah, it just goes, the chaos book really investigates. I told you the story of coming back to the early pre-material versions of materialism in the Euro West. And that sort of led to really thinking about the word chaos in Hesiod and yeah, wondering yeah. A similar question of like, well, where did he get this? I mean, I know Guattari ends up the story of how somebody like Guattari would get a hold of this idea is much more clear than where Hesiod, because other than Hesiod, literally there's no other usage of that word prior to Hesiod. And even in Hesiod, he uses it three times in the whole text. We really don't even, and the etymology of this is very uncertain. People speak more confidently about it than we actually know for sure of like where this word even came from. And also, who cares that where it came from? I mean, I mean, I care kind of where it comes from, but however Hesiod's going to use it, he can use it however he wants. It's not determined by where he got it. It's clearly influenced. In any case, the point is I got very much into thinking that uh, if indeterminacy is there in Lucretius, I wondered if Hesiod might have been an inspiration in thinking about, because in book five, Lucretius's description of the origin of the cosmos is basically Hesiod. You know, it's like there's indeterminate swerving uh, in the beginning that then begin to crystallize and form into the first stuff. It's very a kind of chaos. I mean, it's not my term, but I use the term a lot in the book because it's perfect. But Catherine, Catherine Keller uses the term chaosmogony, and it's perfect. So it's like a cosmogony where chaos is first. And that's what I try to do in the book is trace all of the world's chaosmogenies and show in the text exactly how the story unfolds and what's common across Mayan and Polynesian and Japanese and Norse and Egyptian and Chinese cosmos. I mean, and many more. The conclusions are are too big to present to you now. I'll just have right. to leave those for later because I, I would just say them and they'd sound like you better have some evidence for that. Um, uh, because I do have the evidence and that's what was really cool. It was, a, it, this project was, I really wasn't sure what was going to happen. And it was kind of kept me on the edge of my seat every time. Cause I wasn't really sure if there was even a thing that was going to be coherently 
you could even call chaos across so many different languages, cultures, time periods, geographies, that there would be anything like chaos. And that word's not even used in all those places. Only Hesiod uses it. I'm using it, taking a little bit of liberty and calling them all this. My point is Hesiod is only one instance. He happens to be a very influential instance for Lucretius, but he's only one instance of a much larger world historical tendency of the world's oldest cosmogenies to all begin with chaos. And I think what that gives you when you start with chaos, they all have to do with indeterminacy, they all have to do with process, and they're all relational. And you can see that those are the ideas that like, I've been kind of kicking around in this book and other books. Lots of conclusions, one being the idea of new materialism or the idea of ontological indeterminacy. This is not like my idea I pulled out of a hat. Yeah, I came to it just you know in a tradition like everybody else, coming to Lucretius, digging, digging, digging. And if you dig far enough, you realize it's a pretty old idea. Uh, it's a pretty widespread idea. It might be one of the single widest spread ideas of this kind of magnitude on the planet. I mean, ever. As far as we know in the textual record, it's hard to think of a bigger idea. But for that reason, it's also hard to think of a more crushing and sort of devastating world historical event, which was the disappearance and the death of chaos around the world. And so I track both. The, the name of the book is called The Birth of Chaos, both because it's about the yeah, sort of tracking uh, how chaos emerges in these cultures, but also that chaos is really about birth and that, if you will, the death of birth was a very important moment. And it's not isolated in the 6th century BCE, but that's a big turning point where many of the worlds starting in Eurasia, where we have these texts, you can see that chaos falls out of the record. It's not primary anymore at a certain point. There's a point in time in which it is, and everything comes out of chaos and everything goes back to chaos. And that's that's a world, you know, that's a worldview, really, really different. There's no foundation for the great chain of being. It's impossible. Yeah, you can have people kill each other and come up with little kind of regional hierarchies for sure, but you could they could never ground those ontologically. Because if everything came from chaos and everything returns to it, that's it. It's not flat, it's a process that is everything is destroyed. That's a really specific widespread worldview that ends up being crushed at a certain time in Eurasian history. And then once it's crushed, you see the rise of all kinds of monotheisms and philosophies, both West and East. And then that travels through modern colonialism. So ancient colonialism is one kind of weapon of getting rid of chaos. And then modern colonialism, I just track and see you can you can see wherever Indo-European influenced peoples and languages go, they end up transforming the indigenous stories where we still have records of them. You can watch them in these texts be transformed with the removal of chaos and the, you know, the appearance of uh, Christ and God and all that stuff uh, is right. pretty clear. So anyway, it's kind of tracking the birth and death of chaos in this tradition. I think it'll shed a lot of light. It has for me on what it is that Deleuze and Guattari are even kind of getting at, you know, like why'd they go there with this? But I do think it's one of the cooler things that distinguishes them, the way that they're willing to commit to such an archaic idea and work with it and run with it and still keep somewhat close to the idea of chaos. It's shed some light on that for me. The refrain chapter in A Thousand Plateaus where they're talking about in the beginning is kind of chaos. And then there's like, a, is it like the kid who sings a little song to himself and starts this refrain? But that image of singing in the beginning of sound yeah. is also really important. You know, they're not citing all the world mythology, but it's that's a pretty common thing is that chaos begins and there's some kind of heat or a song or some kind of little something or an egg that begins to resonate. And of course, you know, 
you know, the Dogon egg and all that stuff. But I mean, even though that mythology is extremely suspicious, that was probably not actually very valid for the Dogon people. Uh, I've researched that and it's like, it's a cool story. It really is. But nobody's been able to verify that the people, that that the Dogon people really believed that. And it wasn't just some crazy, not crazy, but just some dude who had a view of the world and shared it with an anthropologist in the 70s. And now nobody has ever been able to validate it or confirm it by any other Dogon person. So, but the image of the egg is, is all over the place. It's not unique to the Dogon. Anyway, that's the chaos project, but that's not the feces of the project. That's just kind of the outline of right. what I've tried to do, but it has big implications. Yeah. The refrain, a little bit of warding off of chaos. What is, fun? oh, you're right. There's the warding off. No, that's actually, now that yeah. I think about that is actually really different. That's totally an Eliade point in the book. That's really like not the conclusion. I mean, with tons of evidence that I end up coming to showing in the text, this is not anyway, he's like really not a very close textual scholar. Like he just says stuff and that is true. <laughs> and then there's no citations of the original languages. He's not even engaging with the primary text half the time. Mm. And Deleuze, I think, is just following in that Eliade moment, but it's not about warding off chaos. I just want to emphasize that in the text, when you look at the primary documents and the primary language, you see this is not about warding off chaos. It's about chaos. Everything just is chaos, too. It's just chaos gets woven and iterated into the world that then goes back into the chaos. It's not a question of warding it off. It's not order versus chaos. It's just chaos all the way down that gets gets metastably structured into things that are like, it's not quite order. It still is chaos in it. It's not warded off. It's not like there's this conflict between order and chaos that Eliade makes it out to be. And well, I think Deleuze, yeah. you're right, is following into that. This is why in what is philosophy, it's a little bit different where it's about sieving, sifting chaos. They turn to Lawrence, right? Where it's about opening up. There's been this umbrella that's that's to ward off chaos but the thinker and the artist have to open up little sections back out to chaos right (laughs) yeah yeah so we we sometimes get a little bit complacent with the sifts and the sieves and we have to be able to open them up a little bit more in different ways so that we can let a little chaos in and and yeah i think that that question of warding off could be overcoding or overcoded by by Eliade but I do think in what is philosophy they they go back to the chaoids right of art science philosophy etc again we'll have to defer that for later and and I, I look forward to that do you think that'll appear sometime this year have you submitted I guess are you still fine-tuning I'd say next year is probably more realistic. Yeah, like I've yeah. got the manuscript done. I just, I need to go back and edit it to clean it up a lot and you fix all my the chaos. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. No, to shape the metastability. Yeah. Of the yes. Chaos. Right. Uh, gotcha. And then, uh, so yeah, I think probably it. next year, okay. next year for that one. And the wolf one, I hope, I mean, if, if it works out, hopefully that one will be this year. It could be next year. And then there's a, uh, a book called The Philosophy of Movement, which is just like an introduction, because now I've just like written so much stuff. And I appreciate you guys taking the time to really read it and engage with it. And I'm glad that this one could be short enough that it's like you could do it and not feel too bad if you to read too much stuff to uh, have, have a conversation. But I appreciate you taking the time on it anyway. But now that I've like kind of there's quite a bit out there. It's like, this is just too overwhelming. Where do you even start? What's the point of it all? So there's a book coming out with University of Minnesota that'll be out, I think, this September. That's just kind of like an introduction to the philo- This is like more of an introduction to the kind of the thinkers, the trajectory, you know, Minoans through Lucretius right. and so on. But the other book that's coming out will just be kind of, it's more like 
the philosophical stuff of like how art, science, politics, ontology are all kind of connected and through the histories. So it's just like a condensed version, hopefully, with like a whole kind of like a response to like various criticisms and questions yeah, yeah. that people have asked over the years in the back section. I just kind of enough of those have built up where I feel like it'd be helpful to respond to a lot of those to help clarify and yeah, just respond to criticisms and questions. So anyway, that'll be out in September. And then, um, but the other book that's, yeah. I was going to say a brief introduction to uh, the philosophy of nihilism. Right? <laughs> I don't know about nihilism, but yeah. Let's, the, let's, yeah not, let's, not, let's not append an, an ism. Let's not, let's avoid it. No, uh, what's the third book? So this one is also done in draft form. This one I can't say for sure will be next year or the year after, but it's a history of consciousness book. So it's like evolution, neuroscience, psychology, not philosophy of mind, <laughs> but right, like right. basically a kind of a, a materialist uh, view of the history of consciousness, dealing with things like the unconscious and uh, animal evolution and psychiatry and uh, well, our, yeah, our most, some politics. Our most recent episode, we got to talk a little bit about the project, Freud's project, right? So you get to get a little bit of that what is that a month or two ago i brought up fucking julian Jaynes. i don't know i don't know where right the bicameral mind and all that so oh, yeah i just assumed that you might have have a footnote on it or something you know in, in the consciousness book he is going into some of that mythological stuff or he's even going to odysseus right when odysseus engages athena it's actually you know a part of his mind has to be externalized to give him the order to give him some insight, it's externalized rather than it being this internal dialogue. Anyway, maybe that's not very interesting to you, but I, I no, it that is. Was one of, that was one of the, I'm, no, I just meant uh, for your book. I, that was one of the books in my, my parents' library growing up. And I remember reading it and being kind of fascinated about this interesting theory about the birth of consciousness, you know, the Athena appearing, like the gods being these externalizations of, of a kind of internal monologue. I do have a, a chapter where I engage with that thematic about the origins of, uh, yeah, the sort of origins of, of uh, religion. I mean, it's about kind of animism and perception and pareidolia and mirror neurons and stuff like that. So, yeah, a bit it's going to be in there. The Minoans come <laughs> back maybe a little bit. Well, animism comes back, but right. yeah, the Minoans, I think, are just one instance of a gotcha. much larger kind of embodied cognitive thing called animism. But again, animism not from the... 19th century colonial anthropology idea yeah exactly it's not just like humans making a mistake by thinking nature is Freud kind of has that idea right doesn't freud kind of run through some of the the prejudices against animism in totem and taboo he kind of or maybe it was civilization is just intense or maybe both he's he's kind of doing a parody of doesn't matter and the other thing was it made me think of rousseau's idea of the origin of consciousness where he's like you know, at one point, everybody was sitting around the fire and they're all singing and there's all equality and everybody's chill. And then there's like this moment, you know, when someone notices that someone else is singing a little bit better or doing something a little bit better. And now there's hierarchy, right? It's just it's like this. It's like this like flash of insight where, where jealousy yeah. arrives on the scene. Anyway, no, but all of that sounds fascinating. And I'm not surprised you've got several projects concurrently. That's how you you keep the pace going. You know, you're, you're prolific and proliferative, just like Venus, right? At the beginning of Terminatura, <laughs> right? Of all of these things flowering. And I love that opening, the opening lines, right? Where he's, he's talking about Venus makes everything proliferate, right? Even the beasts in the field and 
etc. There's a, almost a different origin story than you see like in Genesis, where it's just, you know, instead of it just being this kind of like top down creation, here's some plants, here's some animals, Venus is like inspiring. I think that's one of the words, right? It may even be the a Latinate word. There is this inspiration of love to like be fruitful and multiply. Hebrew Bible, though, just to be clear about like, because I think in that story, it, there is certainly some kind of asymmetry. But in the beginning, there's no explanation of the uh, tohu wabohu and tehom, like the deep, the void. These are things right, right, that are okay. just there. And yeah. this is a residue. I mean, this is leftover from what was probably like Semitic, probably versions of Semitic animism, probably have this residue of a chaosmogony. But yes. once you get to the writing of the text in Genesis, it's pretty late. I mean, I'd be absolutely surprised if it, it had retained its chaos features through so many years of influence by other Indo-European cultures in the area. But once they end up writing it down, there's also this figure of Yahweh or Elohim, and he's just there too. There's no explanation of why either of them are there. The chaos one, to me, that makes sense because almost everybody has that version where like, there is no explanation of chaos. Chaos just is constantly becoming. There's no being, there's no not being, it's just becoming. But then the Yahweh story, he's just like there. So they're both co-posited, but still a co-positing is really different than just having chaos. In okay. fact, it's like completely, it makes all the difference. And Hesiod, same deal. Actually, it's slightly different. In Hesiod, you start with chaos and then Gaia comes into being, but he never says that Gaia is born from chaos. Mm. He just says she comes into being. But she comes to being second, but since she doesn't come from chaos, she can never go back to chaos. Same thing with Yahweh. Yahweh, if he doesn't come from chaos, he can never go back to chaos. Yeah, that means right. he's eternal and he's never going to die. And that violates the basic idea of a chaosmogony where everything has to die. Ragnarok's right. coming and everything's going to be consumed. That's like the key thing that makes that happen is all the gods are going to die. They'll be born and they're going to die. And then more gods will be born. It's same with Atum in ancient Egypt. He says, you know, he creates the world, but he's like, yeah, I'm going to destroy it and then destroy myself and everything will return back to the waters of none, back to the darkness. And that's really crucial. Like the thing that keeps that from happening is Yahweh is never going to go back. Gaia never going to go back. And that's this like first, that's the beginnings of a way out of chaos is to never have to go back to it. Like you said, warding it off, but like really warding it off so that you never have to tangle with it again. And that's the danger is not having this ongoing relationship with chaos and just being done with it, moving on to eternity and, you know, Zoroastrianism and monotheism. And, you know, all those versions are just ways of getting out of the problem of, of chaos. I do think the ward, the warding is, is an interesting, I have to look at the French. It might be, um, it might be conjure because the notion of warding goes back to also anti-Oedipus, right? Where the the primitive territorial machine. Yeah. They, they ward off uh they the ward specter off the state, that haunts yeah. them. Yeah, right. That itself is a is suspect because warding isn't necessarily uh successful, <laughs> right? So yeah, <laughs> right. uh, it's uh okay. Well, Thomas, I mean, we could obviously, you know, we, we could obviously talk for for hours indefinitely in indefinitely, <laughs> but thank you for coming back on the show. I really enjoyed getting to uh to dig into more of your work, still a lot more to to dig into. I, I've I've tried to like jump into each one of the books, but I haven't gotten to like besides Mark's emotion in in this book, I haven't read them cover to cover. So at some point, I'm going to 
do more of that. And, uh, and I do look forward to the book on chaos. If you say it, it was written for people like us, I'm excited for it. And I think that's, that's a good reason to, to have you back, but I appreciate your time. Obviously appreciate your sharing with us. And, um, I hope you keep working because I appreciate your work. Thanks guys. I love talking to you guys. We could talk for hours and hours and hours. Thanks again for taking the time to read the book and yeah, absolutely. engage with it in this way. It's great. Well, we're going to stay on just a little bit, but we're going to let you go to enjoy your weekend. So have a nice weekend. Thanks again for coming on and let's, let's keep in touch as always. And I'll and just, if you find that footnote, if you get a chance, uh, yes. share it with me, you know, on a Pyron, I would love yeah. to see that then I can, that can form the basis for a discussion uh, next time. Okay. Awesome. I'm going to make a note right now and do that. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. I'm going to forget if I don't do it right now. No, yeah. Thanks Cooper. Have thanks, a great Thomas. day. Yeah. Have a good weekend guys. Bye. Thanks again to Thomas Nail for joining us on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. The very rules of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is this is a typical violence of information. It's violence because what happens there is a murder of the green, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Lobotomized people, as in a clockwork orange.